Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning, Candeo family. As always, it is so, so good to be with you all. I recognize that today we have a lot of friends and family in town uh, to celebrate with us some baptisms. And so uh, if you're a first-time guest here at Candeo Church, thank you so much for joining us. We're glad to have you. Uh, if you're not there already, I would love for you to join me uh, in Mark chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 7. And if you're a note-taker, uh, I can summarize really this entire message in a word. And that word would be approach. Approach. And if you want me to expand on that a little bit, if I was to summarize this entire message into a question, it would be a simple question like this. How do we, or if I make it more personal, how do you approach God? How do you approach God? Whenever we're about to meet somebody that's like a big deal to us, this becomes a key question, the approach. You're about to meet somebody that you view as a big deal. You start thinking a lot about, well, what are the words that you're going to say, right? I remember uh, I was with a friend once, and it's painful memory for both of us. <clears throat> but I remember once we were on an elevator, and one of his heroes, like one of his life heroes, like the doors opened up, and that person walked into the elevator and was trapped with us for 20 seconds, you know? And I, I started elbowing him really hard, like, hey, like, say something, say something, which I now totally regret having done that. Because he looks at the guy, kind of gets his attention, gets eye contact with him, he goes, I just need you to know I have the biggest man crush on you. <laughs> that was all he could come up with at that moment. And the guy looked back at him and said, well, it looks like one of us should leave the elevator before one of us embarrasses ourselves. That was <laughs> the statement. It's just like... You're right, so you start thinking about like, I don't want to be that. I, I don't want to go into like, like fanboy mode, right? And say something stupid that I'll regret when I'm about to meet somebody that's a big deal, right? So we think a lot about like what we say. We, we think a lot about like, like what we're going to do. Like, like, do we shake hands? Is this like a double shake moment? Or maybe if they're from another country, are they expecting that I would do like one of those like kiss on both sides of the cheek? Like, that's a thing. Um, you start overthinking it, right? Like, like, how are you going to approach this person? So when we're talking about God, who is the big deal that he is, the same question comes up. How do you approach him? Now, on one end of the spectrum, what you've got is you've got a number of us would think of God and maybe as like a bloodthirsty tyrant who is constantly demanding to be appeased by good behavior and maybe even sacrifice. I'd be on like one side of it, like this bloodthirsty tyrant picture of God and think about how to approach him. For others, the way that you view God is you view him as Nothing more than just simply a, a spiritual force that you can approach really in any way and at any time that you want to. And what we're going to find today in Mark chapter 7 is that neither of those views of God are accurate, number one, but that there is, though, a wrong approach to God and a right approach to God. And here's the comforting thing. It's not complicated. The right approach is not complicated. It's incredibly beautiful, exceedingly simple, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. In fact, it's pretty difficult. So if you're with me, join me in verse 24. This encounter with Jesus 
begins with a fairly mysterious statement about Jesus departing from where he is, traveling about 35 miles north and west to the region of Tyre, and he's trying to get away from people. And you can ask the question, what is up with that? Uh, Simply put, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's become quite the spectacle. The word is out. Everybody knows who he is and crowds are flocking to him and he can rarely get a moment to himself or just with his disciples. And his disciples are growing weary and he's trying to retreat and get away from people. And it doesn't work. A desperate mother whose daughter has been possessed by an evil, unclean, demonic spirit As Matthew records in his gospel, recording this same encounter, he adds that this little girl had been severely tormented for years by this demon. She hears that Jesus is in town and she throws herself at his feet. This is a pretty shocking encounter and a fairly like bold move on her part for a couple of reasons. Number one, first off, as Mark records, she's a Gentile. And if you don't know what that means, it means that she's not Jewish. He's Jewish, she's not Jewish. That's one kind of interesting thing to note. On top of that, she's a Canaanite. She's a Syrophoenician woman. She's from the area of Phoenicia. That's, that's where she was born. She is not only not Jewish, she is Phoenician. She is also Culturally, she is a woman. And on top of that, she has an unclean, a daughter with an unclean spirit. All of those things contextually add up to, she has no business to approach this man because contextually, and she knows this, a person of her nationality, background, and with all that's going on in her life has no business approaching a Jew, let alone a Jewish rabbi. Shocking. The second thing, though, that this passage doesn't record, but we know from history that makes this kind of an interesting move on her part is that the temple to the God Eshman is just up the road. The God of healing that her people have worshiped for over 600 years is just up the road. But here she is not at the feet of Eshman. She's at the feet of Jesus. Begging, begging. Some, you see the word in verse 26, it says asking. Some translations say begging. But that word is in the present progressive form, which means that she kept asking, kept begging. She was persistent in this. In fact, Matthew, as he records in his gospel, again, another kind of add of color to this story, says that she kept asking, kept persisting, kept begging so much. The disciples actually were getting annoyed and asked Jesus, would you send her away? but she's desperate. It's both shocking and not. Because, right, if you're a parent in the room, you know this. If your little girl gets sick, good mamas, good daddies in the room, you know there is no limit to where you would go and what you would do to see your daughter made well. She's desperate. So, what is Jesus' response to this woman? Join me in verse 27. He said to her, 
Let the children be fed first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, I will admit at first pass, that looks like a terrible response by Jesus, okay? And sadly, the response wouldn't have been super shocking to her if he had meant it the way that we, would, that we read it. This is the way that most Jews thought of Gentiles. Gentiles were wild scavenging animals. They were nothing more than dogs in their mind outside of the grace of God. This was how Jews referred to Gentiles. She would not have been surprised if Jesus called her that, but it, it doesn't sit right, right? Because we're like, this doesn't fit with the consistent character of Jesus, his gentleness, his kindness, his compassion. Is he really joining with everyone else and insulting this woman? Is she suffering? I don't think that that's what's going on here. I think the key to understanding this text is understanding the unique and unusual word that Jesus uses there for dogs. Uh, the word there that he uses is rarely used in the New Testament in its Greek form, but it means not dogs, but actually more like little puppies, not wild scavenging animals, but talking about like domesticated house pets. I believe this isn't an insult. I believe true to form for Jesus, it's another parable a metaphor. He's essentially saying this. You're a mom, right? You know how this works. You feed the children first and then house pets after that. They get the scraps, the leftovers. That's how this works. You get that. Because we know that Jesus's mission from God was a Jew's first mission. He was sent to God's people as fulfillment to all of his promises in the Old Testament to them. And that was his mission, that they would see that he is God's fulfillment of all of these promises for them. But then at his resurrection, he would fill his disciples with the promised Holy Spirit and send them to the nations to make disciples of all peoples. First the Jews, then everyone else. And in this parable, he's looking at the woman with a challenge saying, there's an order here. First them, then you. But she catches something in there. She catches something in Jesus' challenge that also sounds like an open door. You said first, not only. You said, said first, like, but, but eventually, right? Like, you're not saying you won't, you don't, you can't, you won't. And she comes back to him with a reply that Jesus can't deny. Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's essentially saying, Lord, yes, Lord, I, I'm not arguing the order. I, I submit to that. But, but even the, the little puppies get to lick the crumbs off the floor that fall from the children's plates while they eat, don't they? And I know that a crumb of you is enough for me. As her response is incredible. It's incredible. I, I just want you to pause for a moment. Like imagine if I moved this situation into like a modern setting, maybe your living room, your hospital room, your coffee shop, whatever. And this is a conversation that you're having with Jesus or a standard American is having with Jesus. And he says, no, first them, then this, right? Using word dogs, things like that. How do you think a standard American would respond to this? Right, you start pounding your fist. I'm, I'm not a dog. I've got rights. 
You do this stuff for other people. Why wouldn't you do it for me? I deserve this just as much as anybody, right? Like that, that's like the type of people that we are. How dare you call me that? That's what makes her response so beautiful because she's not arguing. She's not pounding on the table about her rights. She hears his challenge and she fully submits to it. She owns it. You're right, Jesus. I'm not a Jew. I've never prayed to the God of the Jews. I've never offered a sacrifice to the God of the Jews. I've, I've never stepped foot in a synagogue, let alone I've never stepped foot in the temple. I don't deserve a seat at the table. I'm not scrambling for a main course here. I'm, that's, I understand that. But don't miss what's at the heart of her persistence. I'm not asking you to give me what I deserve based on my goodness. I'm asking you to give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness, Jesus. Does that make sense? Right? She's not asking him to give her what she deserves based on her goodness. She's asking her, him to give her what she doesn't deserve based on his goodness. And then Jesus told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon left her daughter and taking Jesus at her, his word, she left, went back to her home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. Jesus never touched her, never saw her, healed at a distance. It's incredible. It's just incredible. I want you to ask with me this question of why, why does Mark place this encounter in his gospel where he does? Because it's interesting, both Matthew and Mark that record this encounter with Jesus, in both of those gospels, the same story precedes this encounter in both those gospels. So just, if you got your Bibles open, just like let your eyes wander up to the start of chapter seven and just see what's going on as far as a backdrop for this encounter. So what you're going to take note of is right at the end of chapter six, what we have is we have multitudes flooding to Jesus, the sick, paralyzed, handicapped, all being carried on carts and mats, being brought to Jesus, begging to just touch the edge of his robe to be healed. And they were like person after person healed. And in the midst of this, while that is going on, the scribes and Pharisees emerge and what catches their attention is not the power of God on display. Of all things, what catches their attention is that Jesus' disciples aren't washing their hands properly during their lunch breaks. Like of all things, totally miss what's going on here and get fixated on this over here. Now, I just want to clarify, their, their primary concern was not germs. That wasn't the issue there. And on top of it, they know that they're arguing with Jesus not over a command, but over a tradition that they had created for ritual washings and things like that. It's like one of those like Allen Iverson moments, like not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Like this is not a command. It's not a command. We're talking about a tradition. Does anybody catch the reference there? Come on, like any, 
Everybody of my generation, Alan Iverson, like you get it, right? Like not a command, not a command, a tradition. A tradition about making sure that you wash your hands in a certain way and you wash all your utensils in a certain way, even wash your furniture in a certain way because the fear was that if you ate food with unclean hands or with unclean utensils or on unclean furniture, that what you would take into your body would make you unclean and sinful before God. And Jesus looks back at it just exasperated, totally frustrated, and he's like, man, you guys worship me with your lips, but your hearts are so far from me. It's not about like, like what you take in from the outside, like into the inside that makes you unclean before God. It, it goes the other way around. It's, it's, what co- it's on the inside, the overflow of the heart that comes out. That's what makes you unclean before God. You are so fixated on the external, on the, the surface level. I only care about the heart. I care about what's going on in here. And so what you get in chapter seven is back-to-back encounters with Jesus that show these contrasting approaches to God. And one of these approaches, remember I said this at the beginning, there's a wrong way to approach God and there's a right way to approach God. You see in the scribes and the Pharisees a wrong way to approach God that doesn't work. And you see in this Gentile woman an approach to God that does. What's happening? Here's the approach to God that doesn't work, okay? If you approach God trying to be impressive, if you approach God focused only on the external, if you approach God with this posture like he owes you, that you deserve what you seek, God hates that approach and rejects it. Like just take note, as you read through your Bibles, the only times that Jesus ever gets angry with people is when somebody approaches him so puffed up and filled with arrogance that they don't see him for who he is and they don't see themselves for who they are, right? Jesus doesn't get angry with the broken or the lost or the non-religious or the prostitutes. He welcomes them, but the ones that he gets angry with are those who are so inflated in their view of themselves, they can't see him and they can't see themselves. As I've said many times before, the hardest people for Jesus to save are people who don't think they need saving. There's a wrong way to approach God but there's also a right way to approach God and it's incredibly simple. We see it modeled beautifully in this woman, but we see it laid out for us clearly in Psalm 51. I wanna read these verses to you. This is the approach that God loves. You do not want sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering But the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. Or my preferred translation, it is a broken and humbled heart God cannot deny. Like if you want a promise, like the type of promise you could take and lay down as a foundation of your life and stand upon for all of eternity, like the type of promise that you can build a life upon. Here's one of them. A broken and humbled heart, God cannot deny that. He won't. And in case we, 
are about to make a huge mistake here and make this whole passage in this series about encountering Jesus all about the woman and her faith, though her response is beautiful. This text says way more about the heart of God than it does about the heart of this woman. The heart of God is on display here. And I will use Jesus and God interchangeably because Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the exact expression of God's nature. If you want to know how God responds to a situation, watch Jesus. If you want to know how God receives people and what approaches work for him, watch Jesus. So if the question is, how do we approach God? This passage says a lot about God's heart. If you want God's ear, if you want to connect with God, if you want his attention, if you want to know the approach that God cannot deny, that approach must be defined by two words, broken and humble. These are Jesus's simple terms. You don't have to recite special phrases. You don't have to get all the words right. You don't have to bring me sacrifices and special offerings. You don't even have to bring me a special reputation or good reputation or a track list of good deeds. All Jesus wants, all he's asking is for the Syrophoenician heart. Humble and broken. The simplicity here is meant to be comforting. God has not made himself mysterious to us. We know the approach that God cannot deny. So if you find yourself this morning gripped with the fearful question, am I good enough for God? If you've ever prayed and wondered, is God actually hearing you? If you've ever screwed up so many times that once again, you find yourself before God going, will he forgive me this time again? If this morning you're weary and heavy burdened and overwhelmed by the realities of life and you want rest, you know how to get it. Approach God, humble and broken. He can't deny that, and you will leave satisfied. Just a quick kind of caveat here. Like, I understand in this passage, what the woman received was physical healing, and I want to be careful here because I'm not promising that every time you approach God with humility and brokenness, that he will say yes to healing and meeting your physical needs or ending your physical suffering. We know that Jesus will do that at the end of time as we step into eternity with him. We know that there will be that day. Whether that happens in your life now in this moment as you come before him, I, I don't know. You definitely ask him and I will join you in that prayer. But we do know because of the promises of God, the one request that Jesus will always say yes to. The one request that we can make of Jesus that he will always say yes to. And that is if we approach him with a broken and humbled heart and ask for him to end our spiritual suffering and to meet our great spiritual need, his answer is yes, every time, now and for forever, for you.
This is what was purchased for us on the cross. Jesus received God's no so that we would receive God's yes. Jesus' humble request for rescue wasn't granted so that your humble request for rescue would be granted. Jesus' body was broken on the cross so that even the crumbs that would come from that would be enough to make broken people whole. This promise is incredibly simple. It's also exceedingly beautiful. Because not only does this promise that if you come to God with a broken and humbled heart, he cannot deny you, transcend all sins that you could ever commit, all histories and track records that you could ever compile of human resume of all the awful things you could do. Not only does it transcend sins and awful resumes and all histories, it also transcends all borders, nationalities, languages, and races. This is a promise for all nations, every people group, every person. If I could pick you up this morning and take you all across the globe and drop you in random places, and if that place you were faithful to share the gospel with somebody, to tell them that God made the world perfect and in fullness of relationship with mankind, and we chose to rebel against God's good design and go our own way, struck out on our own. And because of that, we now have brokenness in relationship with God and are destined to an eternity apart from him. And if that person that you're interacting with, that new friend that you have looks back at you and goes, what do I have to do to be saved? Every one of you can respond with the exact same simple and beautiful truth that transcends every border and nationality. And it doesn't matter if they're Thai, Kenyan, or Turkish, or if prior to that moment they'd worshiped Allah, Buddha, or science. And that moment you simply say to them, come to Jesus and surrender to him with a broken and humbled heart and he will save you and satisfy your great needs. This promise is simple. It is also exceedingly beautiful. And yet, it's incredibly difficult. Why is something that's so simple, so beautiful, so difficult? It's because it's humbling. And that's hard for us. It's because it requires you to approach God and to offer up to him really the only thing that you can offer him. It's recognize you don't have anything else. See, we like to think that we are impressive before God, but we're, we aren't. We like to think that we've done things in our past that have earned God's affections for us, but we haven't. We like to think that if we can polish ourselves up on the outside that maybe we can fool God, but we can't, and he isn't. The only contributions that we make to our salvation is our sin and our surrender. That's it. That's humbling. Maybe even for many in the room this morning, that feels insulting. but it's true. It's true. Our approach matters and we can't fake it. 
We know scripture tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We know when Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we know here from Psalm 51 that a broken and humbled heart, God cannot deny. So here's, here's the simple invitation I wanna give this morning as we close our time together. It's from Hebrews 4. I just wanna read these two verses over you. Because Hebrews 4 reminds us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, right? Jesus is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet here's the big difference between us and Jesus, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach, right? Key word, let us approach with humility and brokenness, but catch this next phrase, the throne of, what is it? Grace, the throne of grace. Let us approach the throne of grace, not the throne of judgment, not the throne of criticism, not the throne of disappointment, not the throne of rebuke, not the throne of harshness. Of all the words that Jesus could describe, the throne upon which he sits, he calls it a throne of grace. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Why boldness? Because we know the disposition in the heart of our God. that a broken and humbled heart he cannot deny. From all peoples, all nations, all sins, all backgrounds, he cannot deny. But he welcomes us so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. Is there anyone in the room this morning that is in need of mercy? Anybody in the room this morning that's in need of grace? Jesus is welcoming you. And I'm pleading with you this morning to approach the throne of grace in the same way that this desperate mother did. And you too will leave satisfied. And this promise is not purely just for the day of salvation. When you trust Christ and cross from death to life, that is true for you. And if you walked in this morning in desperation and in brokenness in relationship with God, if you lay yourself before him and cry out and say, God, forgive me, he'll take you. But this promise is not purely just for those who are stepping into the faith, new believers today. This promise is for all of you, my brothers and sisters. That as we walk through life, let the posture that defines your life be one of desperation and continuing to cling to Jesus and taking everything that he gives you, even if it's just the crumbs, knowing that is enough for me. And let that be your joy and your posture for all of eternity. That's my hope and prayer for us as a people. So here's how I wanna close our time. I wanna pray together. I'm gonna ask you to do something that might be a little uncomfortable, but I think posture matters. And I love looking at this desperate mother and how she just threw herself at Jesus' feet. She's down on her face, on her knees, begging. 
I think it's good for us to do that. Now, if that's not physically a good idea for you, just then sit in your seat. And I would ask you just to flip your hands over. It's just a posture of desperation. But I'd love for us to hit our faces before the Lord and just pray together, could we? And I'll just lead us in prayer. King Jesus, we bow before you as broken people. You know that, we know that, and we have really nothing to offer you. And the good news this morning is that that's fine because you paid it all. And so I hit my knees desperate, but also with the full confidence, Lord Jesus, that you have paid it all for me. And I just wanna say thank you. And God, I wanna create space for each person bowed before you to pray in the privacy and just the quiet of their own heart, uh, to pray, just finish to this sentence, uh, that Lord God, today I need, and now we need to fill in the blank, Lord, a room this big with so many people, no doubt so many needs, but I know that you hear them all. No doubt some in the room this morning need salvation, need forgiveness. Others in the room, God, we need a fresh work in our life. No doubt some in this room need a fresh encouragement a reminder that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you'll never leave us or forsake us, that when you've got us in your hand, nothing, no one, not even Satan himself, can take us from your hand. But Lord God, I'm grateful that as we approach you, broken and humbled, and we lay our greatest needs before you, that there is more than enough of you to satisfy all of us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church, for praying with me. I'll now hand over the stage to Nathan. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.